right, welcome back. Thank you all for sticking with us, whether you're here in the auditorium or watching online. Um, my thanks to our first panel for, a, I think, a very informative and uh, spirited discussion. Now we're going to turn to an area that's of intense interest to me personally, even though my wife will not allow me to have a drone, um, and that is the commercial landscape for domestic drones. As I think some of our uh, panelists uh, on the first panel made note of the fact the FAA uh, earlier this year released its long-awaited regulations for domestic drones weighing 55 pounds or less, I believe. Am I correct? Uh, for those of you who are hoping or fearing that, the, that Amazon or Papa John's delivery drones are going to be crisscrossing your neighborhood, you'll have to wait a while longer. However, the FAA's rules will allow, at least in theory, a wider use of commercial drones than has previously been the case. So, what, so in the end, what does it all mean, right? Will expanded commercial drone use create more jobs, which is obviously something we're very interested in here at Cato? Uh, and have all the safety and privacy issues been properly addressed? And we're very blessed to have uh, four additional panelists with us today who I think are going to do a great job in helping us kind of go through those issues. Uh, seated to my immediate left is Arthur Holland-Michel, who is the co-director of Bard College's Center for the Study of the Drone, which is an interdisciplinary research institution that examines the novel and complex opportunities and challenges presented by unmanned technologies in both the military and civilian sphere. Earlier this year, he wrote a lengthy analysis of the FAA's finalized drone regulations, which I highly recommend. We also have some of uh, Arthur's uh, publications uh, and the Drone Center's publications uh, out here on the table, and they should also be up uh, on the uh, website, Cato website, on the event page for this particular event. Um, right over here, uh, basically second from the end, is Justin Towles, who is Vice President for Regulatory and Legislative Affairs at the American Association of Airport Executives, which represents the interest of major commercial service airports, general aviation airports, and over 5,000 AAAE members to Congress, the FAA, the FCC, EPA, the White House, and other regulatory agencies with jurisdiction over the aviation industry. Like me, Justin's a former Capitol Hill staffer, and he also served in the Martin O'Malley administration uh, prior to joining AAAE. Stephanie Spear is the Commercial Regulatory Policy Representative at the National Association of Realtors, where she represents NAR interests before a range of federal agencies and bodies, including the FAA. She represents the NAR on the Board of Directors of the Drone World Expo, and for those of you who are interested, that will be taking place this November in San Jose, California. Register while you can. And finally, Travis Hall, on the very end over here, is a Telecommunications Policy Analyst at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. In February of 2015, as uh, our DOJ uh, uh, panelists noted, President Obama signed a memorandum directing the Department of Commerce with the NTIA as the executive agent to convene a drone policy stakeholders in a consensus building forum designed to promote economic competitiveness while protecting privacy and civil liberties. Travis helped oversee that process, which concluded this May with the publication of a consensus document signed by over 20 organizations representing drone manufacturers, the software industry, the insurance industry, the press, and privacy and civil liberties organizations. So with those introductions, we've, we've got essentially several regulatory tracks that we want to try to deal with here. There's a federal component and a state component. There's one track that effectively has the force of law, which of course the FAA regs and, and state laws, and one that relies on voluntary compliance essentially, which is the NTIA process. I'd like to start with the FAA and the state slice if I could, and I want to turn to Arthur first. Uh, to give us an overview of these FAA regs. And I wanted to ask you, what strikes you most about what they do well, 
maybe what they don't do so well. Sure. Thank you, Pat. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to be here speaking at Cato on this very important topic. Um, in, in giving you a bit of a landscape of what's happening with the regulatory space, uh, it's obvious to everyone that we're in a period of transition. Um, drones are a new technology, and no one is 100% sure as to how to integrate them in every single dimension of the life of, of the country. Um, that's a transitionary period that is natural and will last for, for a fair amount of time. But we're also, in, right now, in a sort of micro period of transition where we have just seen the, the FAA implement its long-awaited Part 107 rules. That happened just about a month ago. Uh, these were a long time in the making. Uh, the chapter that preceded that was the exemption period, right? Uh, the exemption period uh, was fairly traumatic, I think, for a lot of those involved, both uh, in, on the industry side, the user side, and on the regulatory side. Because basically what happened in 2012, Congress said, FAA, you need to come up with rules for all drones that are used for non-recreational purposes uh, by 2015. The FAA got to work. Everyone who was hoping to use drones sort of rubbed their hands, was very excited. Uh, and Congress added to that mandate that they should essentially issue exemptions to the current, the standing rules that banned the use in a blanket way of drones for, for non-recreational purposes. It was very, it, it was kind of tedious to get these exemptions. You needed a pilot's license and um, at the end of the day, about 5,000 of these exemptions were issued. There were lots of lawsuits because the law wasn't necessarily clear, a lot of cease and desist letters. Well, that's all over now, and we have blanket regulations that apply, as Pat mentioned, to all, uh, all drone use that is non-recreational. Uh, so Pat, if he does eventually get his drone, would be exempted unless he is trying to be compensated for his activities. Um, and they basically crystallized the rules that the FAA had already implemented for the, the exemptions. Um, so to your question, what the FAA does well and what it doesn't necessarily do so well, a lot in the industry would like to see the FAA move more quickly. These rules were supposed to be in place by September of 2015, I believe. They're about a year delayed. Now, I live in drone years, and drone years are like dog years. Everything happens much more quickly in the drone world, so you want things to sort of, you know, uh, be on time. Um, but that was not the case with Part 107. Um, they are very cautious, right, which to, to some is, is uh, a, a criticism uh, because the industry feels like it is well-placed to do what it is hoping to do in a way that is very safe. Amazon will tell you, yes, we can do drone deliveries in a way that is safe, that can be integrated into the national airspace system without causing uh, havoc for all. Um, what the, the FAA does seem to be doing well and what the industry does seem to be very happy about at the moment is demonstrating a degree of flexibility, a willingness to listen to industry. Uh, what you basically need to know about Part 107, you can read the analysis if you have the time, is that all those rules that are in there are essentially negotiable with a couple of small exceptions. The FA says, these are the rules, but if you can prove to me that you can operate beyond those rules in a way that is safe and reliable and isn't going to put anyone in harm's way, 
you can do so. We will uh, basically um, give out these, these waivers, as they're called, on a case-by-case basis. As, de- as industry demonstrates that it's able to do these things safely, that's going to feed into the regulatory process. I've spoken with uh, some folks at, uh, just very recently, just yesterday, at one of the largest drone makers, and they're actually very happy with part 107. There is still two areas that they're going to push, and I'll end on this. One is the industry really wants the FAA to allow them to use, and them and the, those who use drones, to fly drones beyond visual line of sight. If you're flying your drone and it passes over a hill or it pops behind a building, you are now violating FAA rules. You need to be able to see the drone with your own two eyes at all times. Um, obviously, if you're hoping to deliver iPad cases uh, via Amazon, um, that rule is, is really uh, going to make it all a non-starter. Um, and, and, and to just jump in quickly, is there, is there any hope in that arena? Because, uh, you know, again, I'm not like a fanatic about delivery necessarily, but um, if I'm thinking about it, if I'm a business contractor or whatever, and you start talking about drones that can actually like, you know, bring me stuff from Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever, um, I don't have to leave a site. The stuff can come to me. I can keep working, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just one use case I could think of off the top of my head. What are the chances for that maybe happening down the road? Do we have a sense of that at this point? I, I think given the level of interest that you're seeing from industry, given the fact that we're talking about players who, when they say they're going to do something, they generally do it, uh, such as Amazon and Google, for example, um, but also UPS, uh, there is a good chance when that's going to happen, how many drone years it's going to take for that to happen is a big uncertain question. Where you put your money, um, how you bet on that is, is largely dependent on when it will happen, and, and that's where the big question mark is. The, the other place that the industry is really going to be pushing is on the controlled airspace element. If you look at a map of the United States and you put on top of it a filter that shows all the places where you can't operate drones because it's too close to an airport, for example, um, it's, it, there's a lot of places where you can't fly a drone. In fact, the, the, the Bard College campus, where I am, has a triple whammy. There are three airports near us, and they all have overlapping controlled airspace um, that, that covers about 80% of our campus. The industry would like to see the FAA show some more flexibility and some more sort of effort to integrate drones into controlled airspace so that we don't have to do what we do currently, which is on a case-by-case basis, get uh, a waiver from the FAA to operate, um, say, at a higher altitude than, than the, the blanket altitude ceiling, which is 400 feet. So now we've, we've gone into this, this issue of airspace. And, and I will say, Justin, um, as somebody who started his military career as a turbine engine mechanic with the Missouri National Guard, um, when I think drones and I think airports, I usually have like a Hollywood disaster movie scenario that kind of plays out in my head. And of course, it, you know, if you've watched the, the news at all over the course of the last few years, we have seen multiple reports of these kinds of, of incidents. And I know that had to be all pretty much at the top of the list of concerns that your organization had. So kind of tell us, you know, how you all have kind of dealt with this process from, from start to finish with the FAA. Absolutely. Well, first, you know, in dealing with, uh, from the airport's perspective, uh, airports are con- 
first of all, they're aviation enthusiasts. So it's important to keep that in perspective. And they love the idea of drones. And most of my members, you know, one, one might think that they're, they'd be very, very cautious and you know, want to sl slow this technology down. That's not really the case at all. Um, they're very excited about it. I have lots of airports that want to use uh, UAS on airport property for perimeter security, wildlife management, inspections. In fact, there are quite a few uh, companies, uh, contractors and so forth, that do work at airports that are currently using UAS. So there's a lot of excitement uh, in the industry, but as you mentioned, safety is our primary concern, and we want to make sure that integration is, is really uh, focusing on safety. Um, and we are looking for ways to help accelerate that integration while ensuring safety throughout the process. Uh, the first thing that I think is important to address is the, the obvious thing that we're looking at here is a potential collision between an unmanned aircraft and, and a manned aircraft. And we've heard questions in the industry of whether that would be catastrophic, whether an ingestion of a small UAS would actually bring down an aircraft or disable an engine. So that's the first thing we need to look at. Uh, right now we have model, modeling that I've seen from a few different um, institutions that does show uh, uh, significant concern. Uh, but we have real live testing that's going to be happening hopefully within the next couple of months or year uh, through the Center of Excellence, and I think that's going to be really important to see uh, because if an aircraft ingests ingest a small UAS, something you know the size of a, the two kilogram or, or something along that, is that going to create an engine failure? And if so, what kind of failure is that going to be? You know, Planes are, are built to withstand ingestion of birds up to four pounds in, in most cases, and they can still you know, land safely in most cases with one air with one engine. But you know, a UAS is not a bird. You know, a bird is squishy and it yep. pretty much uh, liquefies. You know, on contact, a UAS has uh, you know a lithium battery. It has a lot of metal dense parts. Uh, and how will that engine? Uh, ingestion um, affect the aircraft. Would Fran frangible material is, exactly. is generally the kind of the aviation technical term for that. Good, thank you. So that's what we're looking to see to really see what uh, you know, what the level of danger is. Um, but we're really looking at a bunch of different ways uh, to address it. Um, the the kind of a bunch of associations have got together from pilots, uh, the uh, air traffic controllers, um, airlines. Uh, airports, state aviation officials, and we've put together a coalition to try to address this issue. I happen to chair that. Uh, we call it the, the 26 Coalition for UAS Safety, and we're trying to find ways to work with the unmanned community to accelerate uh, integration. Uh, one thing, for example, that we saw uh, in Part 107 that we're a little concerned with is that there is no notice, communication, or coordination required when operating very close to airports within Class G airspace. Uh, so there is, basically without getting into you know, technical airspace issues, larger airports have protected airspace around it, controlled airspace, as you mentioned earlier, class uh, you know, B, C, D, and, and E airspace. But the vast majority of airports throughout the country, uh, over 18,000 of them uh, by FAA's definition, are within class G airspace. Uh, and the recreational rule requires notice if you're flying within five miles of those airports, but under part 107, that type of coordination would not be required. And we don't think a five-mile circle around 19,000 airports makes any sense. We, that, that, is, that is what I call, it creates a, what I've been calling a culture of non-compliance. 
because it's it's egregious. It's in the average, uh, you know, drone user is not going to follow that. It's it's nearly impossible to so do. So kind of like the prohibition equivalent. Of Pretty much, the, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. I mean, it, it, as you mentioned, you're within three circles. I mean, I live in 30 miles east of here near Annapolis. There's horse farms all around me. I'm within five circles, <laughs> uh, and several of those are heliports and seaplane bases that I'm pretty sure don't exist anymore. Uh, so it's impossible, literally almost impossible, to, to notify them. So that needs to be addressed. Um, but we also think that in the commercial UAS Rule 107, that no communication, no coordination, no contact, even very, very close to an airport, and in some cases pretty busy general aviation airports, probably doesn't make sense either. So these are some of the gaps that we're looking to, to try to fill the void. And, and with respect to that particular concern, have you all had meetings with the FAA about this? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we um, put together comments to, uh, to Part 107. Uh, we recommended creating heightened awareness zones. We're not saying don't fly near airports, but in certain areas where there's an inherent higher safety risk, there should be, well, I think we recommended there to be an additional uh, awareness tool. So, for example, you could use a radio, you could use a visual observer, lots of different options available to you, but there should be a different protocol and standard operating procedures in those areas. We have uh, raised that issue to, airport, uh, to the FAA, but it's kind of been my philosophy that, you know, raising your hand and saying there's a problem is really only so effective. Yeah. Um, what I think is more effective is providing the solution. Uh, and that's part of the thing that we're, uh, one of the things that we're addressing in the coalition. You know, rather than just saying there's a problem and, and complaining about it, what we need to do is get the minds together, everyone who's got a lot of experience in operating the national airspace system, and say, well, this is what we think will work. Take that then to the unmanned community, say, does this, you know, work from your end, please, you know, highlight some issues, and then we'll present that to FAA and potentially uh, as a legislative option if necessary. But that's the approach that we're trying to take, and, solutions driven. And, and when we talk about the, the, the Hill or the necessity for, let's say, additional legislation or clarification, um, any conversations thus far with folks on the Hill about the concerns that you all have or? Sure, yeah, absolutely. I and mean, we have a very open and, and ongoing conversation with a lot of the key leaders in, in both the, the House and the Senate. Um, but that's certainly not our first, um, you know, our first goal. Our, our goal is to, to address whatever we can through FAA, it, it, it's certainly um, the quicker way to deal with it. I think it's, it's the better way to, to deal with some of these issues. But uh, I think we have encountered, and Steph and I actually served on some of the uh, aviation rulemaking committees together, there have been times where FAA is, is constrained by uh, the regulatory framework. Yeah. And so there, there are times potentially where we need to, to have some legislative fixes um, but that certainly shouldn't be our first stop. So we're trying to address things through FAA, through, through regulation, and then if necessary, we can, we can take the additional steps. And do you think that the existing 107 structure um, is, <clears throat> is essentially sufficient for them to issue additional guidance, additional regulations? Do, the, do you think they need any additional authority, or do you think they have enough to actually take action on their own, if you will? Yeah, I think for the most part, when it, when it comes to commercial operations, I think we're pretty happy with 107. I think the framework gives FAA um, quite a bit of a ability to, to move and address some of our concerns under commercial operations, under recreational operations, which I know isn't the focus necessarily of this panel, but there we have some additional concerns and FAA does not have regulatory authority in that area. So that one, for example, might take some, um, some input 
from FAA and then um, possibly some action from Capitol Hill? Well, of course, you know, as I indicated at the beginning of this, we have multiple tracks going. And I referenced um, President Obama's action in February 2015, which put our friends at NTIA uh, in, in kind of, from my perspective at least, a somewhat awkward position of trying to get some folks around the table to, to agree to some standards to, uh, to help us advance competitiveness objectives, which obviously is something that's very important to us here at Cato, uh, mm -hmm. but also deal with some of these other privacy uh, and potentially civil liberties related issues. So, Travis, if you could kind of give us an overview, essentially, of the multi-stakeholder process that NTIA led, that would be awesome. Absolutely, and uh, again, want to echo thanks for uh, having having me here. I've already learned uh, quite a bit, including the fact that frangible means not squishy. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and um, so the multi-stakeholder process uh, that uh, the president uh, put in place was to uh, do best practices for um, privacy, uh, transparency, and accountability. And um, for the most part, a lot of the focus was on um, privacy, but certainly we talked quite a bit about transparency and accountability as well. Uh, just a little bit of um, flavor for why NTIA uh, and who we are and why we're in the process uh, is that uh, NTIA uh, has been involved in uh, convening multi-stakeholder processes uh, on privacy, on uh, mobile apps, uh, uh, facial recognition technology, uh, and then UAS, as well as intellectual property, uh, and now cybersecurity. Uh, there are two multi-stakeholder processes that are actually currently ongoing, one on cybersecurity vulnerabilities, and the second, which is going to be starting October 19th in, October, in Austin, Texas, on uh, IoT patchability. Uh, so even though we were, you said that we were put into the awkward place of having to do the convening, we've actually been doing a number of these types of convenings. Um, and so the president, uh, in the memorandum, um, recognized, I think, uh, the truth is that uh, UAS is a new technology, right? That it is actually uh, qualitatively different. It's qualitatively different uh, in, to a certain extent, the ways that were talked about in the previous panel, right? Where uh, not so much that it is a different technology than a helicopter with a sensor on it, <coughs> um, but that the economies of scale, that the size, that the uh, ability of people to use them uh, because of <coughs> uh, their size and because of their cost. Uh, essentially, the quantitative differences actually do lead to some qualitative differences. Um, and that moving forward, particularly with the Department of Transportation, uh, and uh, I, I would leave it to others to argue the right or wrong, which was a good question that was asked to the previous panel, um, saying that they don't have the legal authority over privacy for commercial and private use of UAS, uh, does then beg the question of who actually, who actually does regulate that. And that is a part of the bigger question in our country of who regulates commercial and private uh, privacy, right? And for the most part, that is a question answered by the, um, by the FTC's uh, Section 5 authority on unfair and deceptive practices. Um, so where does that leave us in terms of, you know, somebody hovering a drone over your backyard or somebody flying over a park or somebody doing something like that that trips those privacy queasinesses, right? The, these, the, the privacy reactions where you feel the creepiness, where you feel like you have a reaction against, against this. And, um, 
and to a certain, and also, you know, the, people's legitimate expectation of um, of privacy, both in private places, but then also in public. Right? You have uh, Jay brought this up in the in the previous panel about uh, the right to privacy in public, right? And to I love the term obscurity. Right? The, this was used in a number of different areas that when you're in public, you don't necessarily have a right to privacy, but you also don't expect everybody to know your name. Right? You, de- you also don't expect to be, to be followed around. You have an expectation, maybe not of privacy per se, but you have an expectation of general obscurity. And again, with these economies of scale, uh, this is not what we're seeing currently, but it does, prov- but it does raise that specter of uh, omnipresent um, surveillance uh, from the government, but then also uh, from other individuals, right? Of having you know people follow you around in ways that you wouldn't necessarily want. And so, um, so what the president put in place in terms of the VAR process was a process that uh, put that uh, asked for best practices for privacy, transparency, and accountability. And what that means is where the goal of the process, as I saw it, and of course this was a uh, NTIA, let me just put this major caveat out. NTIA convened the process. Uh, The president scoped the process. And the stakeholders were the ones who actually ran the process, decided what the agenda was for the most part, and then ultimately decided whether or not there there was consensus. And um, I appreciate the ACLU, as well as Stephanie, the realtors, on participation. Uh, I know that you were here there for for several of the meetings. I appreciate all the stakeholders of hard work, because it was a lot of hard work. And even though not everybody agreed at the end with the uh, best practices, uh, I want to put out there that this was 100% stakeholder-driven in terms of the content, in terms of what was finally decided, uh, and in terms of whether or not people decided that the process was done at the end. And I think that that was the only thing that everybody actually agreed on. Uh, That being said, what I saw is the process and what the goal was. And I think what the goal, uh, uh, and this is just a personal opinion here, uh, what the goal that was generally achieved was to say, okay, for people who actually want to do right, right, for the individual or for the company that is not actually, even though Amazon was an extraordinarily helpful, productive player in this process, even though Google was a part of this process, I don't think it was really aimed at them, right? Because they've got lots of lawyers, they've got lots of experience with how to deal with concerns about privacy, how to do a, uh, a, pri- you know, uh, a privacy policy and how to put that on their website. I mean, they've actually got websites that you can actually go and very easily look at, or in Google's case, search for privacy policies, right? Uh, it's much more aimed at the people who don't necessarily, who want to be good neighbors. Right, who want to actually respect the privacy of the people who uh, they might be capturing the data of, uh, and who want to be able, you know, who want to want to be good actors because the bad actors are going to be bad actors, right? And that's and that is that is not what this process really did, and that is where you can actually say, well, where 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 does the regulation fall? Where 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 do we need to actually have trip lines? This was not so much for this. This was saying, okay, if you want to use a UAS in a way that is proper, that is good, that respects people, how do you do that? And uh, the best practices lays out a number of different uh, uh, different uh, principles. Some of them often, t- uh, because they are best practices, because they are not actual like. Mandates, most of it has um, 
language in it that says we're practicable, when uh, do this as long as you don't have a really good reason not to, things like that. Um, but my favorite part of the best practices, and you're welcome to look at them, they are on, posted on web the, our NTIA's website, um, is that the section at the very end that's just simply how to be in you know, neighborly use, how to, and it kind of breaks it down a little bit from the lawyer speak into just if you want to be a good neighbor and you're flying your drone over, your, over somebody's private property, if you can, let them know, right? If it makes sense for what you're doing, you know, you should let them know. And that's, again, this, I think, to a certain extent, is common sense best practices about how to be a good neighbor, but it's not necessarily always entirely clear, particularly when it comes to co the collection of data that might be private <coughs> or personal, and uh, particularly for companies for whom the purpose of what they're doing is not to collect personal information, right? They're not flying around trying to take people's pictures. They're not flying, they're not interested in that. And how do you actually go about what, what is reasonable, what is not reasonable? And I think that that's what the best practices was aimed at. Uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, what I see in terms of the long term of this is that um, I'm hopeful that these best practices will be educational. I hope that they are, will be to a certain extent inspiring. I think that we can have, there, it is a consensus-based document, so there is certainly um, some people who would argue that these are not the best practices, but are rather uh, okay or suggested practices. But at the same time, that's my hope, is that they will actually move, they, they have moved the conversation forward in terms of what is, for good actors, what is good neighborly use of a UAS, uh, such that when we actually get down to brass tacks and practice actually starts happening, uh, then we can actually move forward uh, with, a, with an advanced conversation. Well, and, and it's, the, um, it's the real world aspect um, of this that also interests me intensely. You know, how, how does all this actually um, kind of get put into place? And that's why I'm really, really, really ecstatic that Stephanie is here because um, her organization represents literally thousands of small business owners. I mean, that is, that is what you are essentially if you are an independent real estate agent and even within most brokerages, um, you know, you are essentially an independent actor. And so you have all kinds of, of costs that go along with that. They already face kind of a maze of state and federal regulations and laws and how they uh, govern, how they interact with the public. There's licensing and professional education requirements that go along um, with all that. And so now I know that um, there are a number of, of realtors across the country that are beginning to kind of get into this, this business of trying to use uh, UAVs, drones, et cetera, for um, the actual you know, practice of their business. So, you know, Stephanie, give us a sense of how NAR has approached this and what you've been hearing from your members and what your, the organization's views and kinds of its experience both in dealing with the federal slice of this, but also the state slice of this. Okay, so um, NAR is America's largest trade association. We have 1.1 million members all across the country, um, and that doesn't include our international members. And as you can imagine, um, a lot of really diverse businesses. Some are very sophisticated, very high-end brokerages um, with very cutting-edge practices, and others are a little more laid back, um, you know, smaller communities, different types of communities. Um, so our approach actually came from the rural realtor groups. Uh, NAR has several subsidiaries, and one of them is the Rural Land Institute. Um, and a lot of those guys actually already are using aviation in their businesses. Um, the first people to really contact NAR about using UAS in their businesses 
already have pilot's licenses. They already have one or more small planes that they use. Uh, one of my favorite examples is um, a gentleman who works in rural Florida, and he sells huge tracts of swampland and farmland, like 10,000 acres. Um, there's really no better way to show that kind of property than from above. So the fact that he already was using aviation and wanted to go to the next step, which is using UAS, I mean, it makes absolutely perfect sense. Um, it's cheaper, it's safer, it's faster. You get better pictures, um, higher quality data. Uh, it's just really a fantastic tool for someone like that. Um, in terms of NAR's engagement in this um, from the lawmaking, rulemaking perspective, we really viewed it as an opportunity to demonstrate to members that we're not always reacting to changes. Um, so drones are actually only one of my issues in my portfolio. Most of the rest of my issues are having to do with bank lending or building standards. Um, but because realtors all love tech and we want them to be able to advance their businesses in the most interesting ways possible, we thought, okay, well, this is really a chance for us to, to go on the hill. People are, are making the sausage. We can get in on that. We can really have a, a voice in the conversation. And it's been a fantastic ride. Um, we've had a lot of really interesting conversations with lawmakers, both at the FAA, the NTIA, and um, on the Hill. Um, we've testified um, in front of a couple of hearings. I've had several informational meetings with Hill staffers. It's been really great to show that realtors are really interested in technology and how they can be astute consumers of the technology and the service providers. Um, so that's been, it's been really exciting for us. You know, people are always surprised to hear that realtors are really involved in this, but then they think about it for like one more moment and they realize that it's it's like a perfect fit. Um, it's been great. You know, we've, we've been able to develop relationships with businesses and organizations that are sort of new for us, but at the same time, we play kind of in the same sandbox. I, you know, Justin and I are on the same sort of speaking circuit, and it makes perfect sense because a lot of the businesses that he represents are in the communities that my guys live in and work in, and, and you know, they have this sort of like this, they want things to be good in their community, so the common interest is there. So in terms of what NAR is telling members, um, you know, there's 1.1 million of them, so we do our best to educate them. Um, I've noticed since the rule came out that I've been getting a lot of queries that are at root someone's wires are crossed um, because the 333 waiver regime was very confusing, especially to non-aviators and people who aren't familiar talking in regulatory terms. Um, there's some old information mixed in with some new information. Um, so just yesterday, I got a query from a member in Arizona who was like, I heard you have to take this class and it costs several thousand dollars and there's a test and there's this. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like there's just a lot of information out there and we wanna get people to the right information. And I think, um, you know, everyone here has mentioned this, but like, we're at the beginning. You know, there's already been a lot of work on the lawmaking, on the best practices, but like as a culture, um, as operators, as service providers and service consumers, we're all trying to figure it out. Um, and the whole myth busting factor is something that um, I don't think anyone has cracked. I, you know, NAR, we do our best, but we can't get to every realtor. Right. Um, you know, I'm Skyping into two different realtor groups later this week to talk about drones and, and to sort of dispel some myths, but. You know, we have over 1,400 realtor associations in the U.S. I can't go to all of them. Right. Um, you know, we try to do our best, but I think a lot of it is incumbent upon people to be good neighbors, be good consumers. Um, you know, I was on the micro UAS arc earlier this year, and it makes me really glad that the big service providers are there. You know, DJI and GoPro and 3DR, they're all in the room at these conversations. Like, they really understand that the product they're selling comes with some real challenges. And, um, you know, we're having these interesting conversations, and we just need to get it out there and get everybody equally informed.
you know, um, Travis was talking about people's, I think, inherent expectation about some level of, of obscurity when, when you're out uh, in public. But, for example, if, if an agent wants to utilize a drone in, in a given jurisdiction, and uh, let's say it's a listing, right? Um, what, what are the, the issues, ultimately, that the average agent has to confront? I'm, I'm assuming that because we've seen all this, this state regulation that has tended to be more focused on uh, the law enforcement side. Like here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I live, uh, we have, you know, one of those thou shalt not use drones law enforcement pretty much across the board. I was initially very excited about that. Um, but I think from a, from a search and rescue standpoint and a hazmat incident standpoint, there, there are probably some good arguments there. But when I think about neighborhoods and I think about an agent getting a listing and then the, the owners basically saying, hey, wouldn't it be great uh, if we could get some drone footage, essentially an overhead, so you could put together a sales video, et cetera, all that kind of thing. Then the privacy aspect of it kind of kicks in for me because the folks that live around the person, if they have small children, et cetera, are they, are they going to be comfortable with that? So is, is that an issue that has surfaced um, in the course of all these discussions and the and the feedback that you've been having to engage in with your members? Absolutely. Um, since day one, NIR has taken the position that the two most important things in this conversation are safety and privacy. Um, you know, we're talking about people's homes, people's businesses. Um, you know, I work mostly with commercial members and, you know, a lot of the people they work with are small businesses or family-owned businesses. So there's like the, this very visceral reaction. Um, so I guess I'll just walk you through the, what I, the ideal realtor evaluation would be for talking about, do I use a drone on this listing? Okay, so my client wants me to use the drone or a colleague has suggested to me and I, I, I'm interested, but I'm not totally sure. Um, so the first thing that I wanna do is do a Google search to find out who can do this for me. Um, I'm an expert in buying and selling homes and helping my clients. I don't necessarily need to become an expert in photography, safety, you know, drones are a tool, but it requires a certain skill set to both operate the drone safely and get good images. It'll take you two seconds on YouTube to find a real estate listing that'll make you car sick. We don't want that, <laughs> right? Like, we want only the best. So I'm going to probably think, like, well, shoot, is there anyone in my community who's a really good service provider who has worked on listings like this before? Is this listing even worth it? Like, if I'm selling a townhome, it's probably not worth it unless there's like a really great community pool or some other feature that you want to highlight. But if I'm, you know, if I sell a home um, on the James River, I went to college in Richmond, so there's lots of, you know, beautiful vistas. Um, you know, maybe that's a better suited property. So who in my community can I hire? If not, am I a gearhead? Do I love this stuff? Have I been doing model airplanes since I was a kid? Um, I guess the bottom line is not every realtor is gonna use UAS. Not every listing is well suited. We want realtors to understand the tools that are available to them, but also the idea, you know, realtors are, are very accustomed to hiring things out. You know, they don't do appraisals, they hire someone else. Inspections, same thing. Electri electricity work, same thing. Um, a drone is a service, it is a tool. Don't be dazzled by it. You still need to do your due diligence. You still need to check out the person's licenses, check out their insurance. Are they insured enough? Do you want higher insurance for your particular job? Um, and the right service provider will be responsive and be transparent. Um, you know, I get calls from UAS operators all the time, all over the country. They say, I wanna be listed on your website. I wanna be featured. And at the beginning, we had a list of operators and it was great until it became to be like totally overwhelming. Um, so we took it down. Um, but I talked to some people who are, 
I want to send them business all day long. They are so transparent. They have beautiful websites. All their information is readily available. They, they're open about their insurance policies, um, and they're open to talking about amending their insurance policies for a particular listing. Um, then there are the people that you can tell got their waiver because they played video games in their basement for 10 years, and now their mom's kicking them out and they have to have a job. Um, <laughs> those people managed to find my phone number and call me, and I really can't like be excited about them because I don't want realtors working with them. Yeah. I want them working with the best service providers. Yeah. The realtor brand is built on excellence. How can we provide the best information, the best service to our clients? The same thing goes for any service provider that we're going to hire, especially drones, because of the safety and privacy aspects. And, and, the, and the privacy slice of this, what, what is it that you're basically trying to get across to your members? If, if they're thinking about either buying their own unit or hiring a provider, what, what essentially is the advice that you're giving in that respect? Um, I mean, Travis gave a great description earlier with the best practices. The last page um, is really how to be a good neighbor. A lot of this stuff, you know, common sense isn't so common, right? But you want to be a good citizen. You want to be a good neighbor and put yourself in someone else's, someone else's shoes. So you think about, like, the house and the flight that you have to take to go around it. You know, depending on what neighborhood you are, you might hit zero homes. You might hit four. It depends. Like, I don't know. Um, but how do we be good, right? Like, how do we be a good neighbor and be a good steward? And how do I, as a realtor, I mean, realtors are all about their brand. It's all about the relationship. So if I'm, you know, Joe Q. Smith, realtor, and I'm in your neighborhood, and I'm really making everyone uncomfortable, ultimately, that's bad for my business. I want to have a good business practice and be a good neighbor. So that might mean handing out flyers that say, like, hey, I'm selling this home in your neighborhood. By the way, I'm hiring a drone operator. They're going to be flying at this time. You know, if you're interested, come watch. Let's have a demo. You know, there's a lot of ways to be a really good neighbor with this technology, just as there are ways to be a bad actor. And it's with anything. It's not unique to drones. You know, people still speed. People still drive drunk. People still don't wear their seatbelts, even though, like, culturally, we've been talking about things for years and years and years. So we want realtors to just be really good neighbors, be an ambassador for your brand. Um, and because they are so, um, their businesses are so based on relationships and, like, that personal uh, connection, they understand that intuitively. And with respect to both the federal and the state slice, are there things that are kind of bubbling out there on the horizon that give NAR pause? Or are there some things that may be percolating that should be of concern, essentially, to your members and maybe even to the public kind of generally in this sphere? So um, NAR doesn't really get involved with state issues. So I won't say that anything gives NAR pause. But um, me, as a person who likes process and federalism and regulatory policy, um, there are definitely things happening that make me really uncomfortable. Um, I think. Unfortunately, a lot of communities are, are in this situation where there's knee-jerk regulation or legislation being put on the books where there's a sort of uncomfortable incident that happens where maybe someone feels harassed or they were harmed. So people say, let's legislate, let's make a law. But they don't realize that states already have anti-harassment and anti-peeping-tom uh, you know, laws, and they're technology agnostic. Um, but people see drones as sort of this like easier thing. And it's like, you know, if someone wants to be a creep, they're going to be a creep no matter what. Right. Um, so... That makes me uncomfortable because I think deliberation is good, which is why I like regulatory policy because it's so slow. Um, but you know, that's what makes me uncomfortable is these communities that are so quick to react to the bad actors. They don't leave room for um, the more positive aspects like search and rescue and crop rotate crop evaluation and, and these more positive aspects. Did you want? I thought for sure you wanted to jump in and talk about. It. Did I? Did I misread you there? No, I mean, the, it, the, the concerns that Steph is raising uh, speaks to the, what, what we see as the next big challenge that 
needs to be faced in the immediate uh, on the part of both the regulators and all, all other stakeholders, which is the local laws element. As the FAA would like it, the United States will have one single federalized airspace system where if you cross state lines or county lines, you are still subject to exactly the same airspace rules. Um, as states, local governments, municipalities, counties see it, <coughs> drones are potentially an issue, and so they have a right to actually control how drones are used in their airspace. And if they see that the FAA rules are not necessarily adequate to protect their community, then they see it as their right to implement rules. So I'm flying my drone very happily in Nassau County on Long Island, and I cross over into Suffolk County. I'm, I'm operating according to FAA rules, but Suffolk County now has a different set of regulations in addition to what the FAA already mandates, stating that, for example, you can't fly drones under 300 feet. So what, in a sense, they've done is created a very small sort of layer of airspace in which you can operate drones. Um, every time that there is an incident where a sheriff has to stop some young kid from operating a drone either near an airport or outside somebody's apartment, um, there's going to be a conversation around that. And in many cases, that conversation leads to a regulatory conversation. And the temptation is there to have an ordinance. And as, as local governments see it, that, that is 100% their right. But if you have an airspace system that is a complete patchwork, to use the FAA's term, um, that is, in their eyes, a nightmare. It is a nightmare in the eyes of industry. Uh, I'm sure it is a, a, a bit of a nightmare in the eyes of your constituents. Um, that's going to be the big issue. And as I understand it, it's going to be a big issue because nobody is sure how to resolve it. And, and it goes even down to the micro level. If I'm sitting in my backyard in Long Island and I happen to live in Nassau County, which doesn't have these drone rules, but you know, Suffolk County is a few miles away, and a drone flies over my property while I'm having a barbecue with my family, what's my recourse? Do I have a recourse? What does the drone need to do for me to be able to pick up the phone, let alone a shotgun, but you know, pick up a phone and, and call the police and say, you know, this, this drone is, is, is doing something illegal. Um, what are the rules here, right? Uh, if I stop the drone from operating over a portion of my backyard, um, is that interfering with a potentially very beneficial use, say, uh, a private delivery company that's delivering urgent medical supplies? On the flip side, does anybody in this audience want to give totally open season above their property for drones to fly overhead? I should note, every single drone essentially has a sensor, is collecting information, right? No matter what the beneficial use is, there is information that's being collected by these systems. Don't we feel like we have some right to, to regulate the airspace above our own backyard? I mean, I can grow a cypress in my backyard. It'll take me 10 years, but I've suddenly interfered in the airspace system. But if a drone flies overhead, am, am I allowed to do something? You're going to see this whole sort of soup of stakeholders all trying to interact, and it's going to be very, very complicated. 
I don't have any good predictions as to what the resolution is going to be. I'm pretty sure that we'll figure it out somehow. But now that part 107 is out, now that you just have to take an online test and then you can be a certified drone operator, the, the local stuff, the property rights, that's what we're going to have to deal with next. And just to follow up on that, I think one of the, uh, one of the key areas that I, <laughs> uh, I am proposing a problem and not necessarily a solution, <laughs> um, but one of the key areas that I think is central to that is the question of transparency, right? It is the question of if you see a drone flying overhead, uh, can you see that that's an Amazon drone, right? I mean, it's like, uh, 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 I'm not going to, claim originality in this. I stole this from somebody else in terms of the example. But like you see a UPS truck coming down, coming down and stopping and double parking on a regular basis on your street. You see it's a UPS truck. You have a general idea of what it's doing and why it's there. Um, and if the UPS truck like dings a car, you can call UPS and be like, hey, UPS, you just dinged a car. Um, or this is the driver that did it. And with UAS, that I think is going to be one of the key aspects of figuring out some of these issues, right? Is figuring out if you see a drone flying and it seems like it's doing something suspicious, right? Are you going to be able to call the police or are you going to just be able to figure out, you know, in some form or other, hey, this is like, this is a realtor drone, right? You know, I got the flyer. I know that this drone is flying around because it's a realtor. You could like it or you could not like it, but at least you have an idea of what, what it's doing and why it's there. Um, the interesting part of that, though, is it does raise then privacy issues in the reverse, right? It does, it does raise some privacy issues about the drone operator and the ability to, to go into the park and, and not necessarily get harassed, right? And, um, and so I think, that there are, I think that there are ways to do this and there is precedent for, for how, to, how to handle this. Um, but I think that the transparency part, which was part of the presidential memorandum, uh, is really key in terms of actually moving forward, in terms of actually addressing uh, concerns about privacy, concerns about potential bad actors, and then also like allowing for an understanding of, okay, that's an Amazon drone. Yeah, of course, I, I, I have an understanding that that's just like a UPS truck. I see, I see it flying over. But I know what it's doing. Uh, if I have a problem with it, I know who to call. Something tells me <clears throat> that from a technological standpoint, Somebody's going to come up with the idea of, in essence, basically saying to manufacturers, you need to put some kind of transponder system um, on these platforms. And then somebody who's a whole lot smarter than I am, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to come up with an app that you can get on these things that you can have running in the background that will then tell you, oh, yeah, that, that, that particular drone just flew by, et cetera, et cetera. I, I could see somebody kind of going down that road. And, and speaking of parks, um, most weekends you'll find yours truly out at, at, out at Great Falls hiking with one or more of my dogs. Uh, and I will say that one thing that I am grateful to the, to the National Park Service for doing is uh, essentially instituting what amounts to a no-fly policy of drones uh, within the national park system uh, at this point in time. I personally think that that's probably appropriate, particularly when we start talking about um, potentially uh, uh, causing damage to or even killing wildlife. On the other hand, I think if you're also uh, a would-be documentary filmmaker like yours truly, uh, amateur on the side, you would actually like to have the capacity um, 
in a properly regulated environment to be able to fly a DJI or something like that at a particular altitude over Great Falls uh, and actually capture that. So I, I think as much as I, I appreciate what the Park Service is doing, I do think there's going to have to be some flexibility in that arena as well. You know, we are, uh, we are now approaching essentially uh, the last 15 minutes or so of our, our time together here, so I think we are going to open it up to Q&A. Um, number one, please do wait uh, to be called upon. Wait for the mic so everyone in the room and the audience watching online can hear, and please do announce your name and affiliation. And I think if we can, uh, let's start right here in the front row. Jim Sang, retired. Stephanie uh, mentioned the word international. Um, England, uh, curious about what policies and practices are like in England where there's been a collision. Israel, which makes some and has very unusual security problems. And China, which is a completely different part of the world, but makes lots of them. What are rules and regulations in other countries? Arthur, I think we're looking at you. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a, a bit of a mishmash in, in uh, the UK, as I understand it. If you're under a certain weight threshold, then it's, it's more open season. The FAA is discussing that currently. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, actually, what, where the, the UK stands on a larger operation. Um, they are limited in, along some of the same dimensions, like, for example, altitude, not operating near airports. Um, so you're seeing in most countries uh, some level of trying to regulate these systems. And, and those regulations are going to generally take the same form. You know, you're not going to see a, an aviation authority um, allowing drones to operate open season in, you know, at, at 10,000 feet because that becomes a very busy arena for, for other aircraft. Um, the, the key question is how quickly it happens, whether you have a, uh, some kind of waiver process. If there's a licensing process, as they have, for example, in the Philippines, to much fanfare, they announced the first engineering company that, that you know, has, has acquired a license to, to operate a drone. But what does that bureaucracy actually look like? Do you have people who are rearing to go and are, are actually unable to act on that because it's, again, drone years taking longer than they, they would like to see it happen? The drone regulations in Israel, I, I, I cannot honestly tell you what their, their commercial drone use regulations are. I actually happen to work with a couple of companies in Israel that have some uh, very interesting uh, UAS detection and mitigation uh, technology, uh, a lot of them for military purposes as well. Um, but to, uh, to answer your question a bit broader, uh, and I'm not saying that you're, you were pointing at this, but I, I hear um, a, a lot of people in the public and, and some in industry kind of uh, allude to the fact that many other countries around the world are a bit more advanced in allowing UAS uh, to operate commercially. And I think there's maybe some aspect of an illusion that they are also more advanced in the regulatory process. And I would say that's really not the case. And I think um, Stephanie and I heard that uh, firsthand uh, through the Aviation Rulemaking Committee for Micro UAS, a bit on the registration task force as well. Um, because we heard from those countries. We heard from, from Canada, we heard from IASA, we heard from um, several others. Uh, and the reality there is their airspace systems are much, much less complex than ours. And they do not have the robust general aviation uh, industry that we do, uh, which really complicates things. So we, we were almost turning to them to hear, you know, 
we, we hear, you know, that you guys have more commercial applications in Japan's having agricultural uses with the RMAX and, you know, kind of a, uh, on a widespread basis. And we turned to them to, to hear kind of their thoughts. And for me personally, I, I didn't really hear any smoking gun regulatory answers. I think, honestly, that, um, you know, there, there's probably some lessons to be learned from, from other countries, but I think the U.S. is paving the way as far as creating a regulatory landscape, to be honest with you. And I, and I'm not really in the business of doing this, but I have to praise the FAA. <laughs> um, I think the FAA really has done a quite a remarkable job over the past year of making this a, a huge focus for for the uh, for the agency and accelerating uh, integration um, faster than. Pr it's unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. I, the, the registration task force went from announcement to final rule in three months. I mean, that's unprecedented for the, for the agency. Uh, and the, any the, agency. The, any agency, really. Yeah. You know, it is. There's only been a few rules uh, with that time frame in history. Um, and then the DAC, which is a dr the Drone Advisory Committee, which is uh, kind of being orchestrated by RTCA, they've split into uh, two major taskings that they're looking into right now. One is addressing airspace issues, so safety issues. And the other is addressing the two issues we kind of talked about a little bit before, of privacy and also what we're doing with preemption and, and so forth, state and, and local rights as well. And I think that group is a phenomenal group that's, that's been put together. There will be an additional 75 or so uh, stakeholders uh, put on a subcommittee to, to address uh, more specific technical issues. And I think FAA really has, is doing a great job of paving the way for the complex regulatory framework that's going to be required to ensure that the UAS industry reaches its full commercial capability. Ironically, just a little hint back to when I was talking about the, the 26 coalition before. It's named the 26 coalition after the 1926 Air Commerce Act. And the Air Commerce Act was put into place because uh, Congress thought that in order for aviation to achieve its full commercial capability, we first needed to have a regulatory framework for safety in place. Because if major accidents continued to happen, the public would lose faith in the industry and it wouldn't reach its commercial capability. We're right back there. We're right back in 1926 with a brand new technology. And we have to look at it that way. We have to put the necessary regulatory framework in place so that the public will have confidence, and, and privacy is a, you know, a huge part of that, in this industry moving forward. We have time for maybe one or two more. In the very back there in the center, the gentleman uh, in the blue shirt, Uh, my name is Ari Ash, reporter with Transport Topics News. Uh, my question, one of the, the areas I cover is the FedExes of the world, the UPSs of the world, the Amazons of the world. So I was very interested in the discussion related to that. How many drone years, to use a term that Arthur used at the beginning, how many drone years do you guys see before these uh, delivery services start using uh, drones on a regular basis. And then secondly, as sort of a, a corollary to that, these companies have told me, well, we're not going to use it in busy residential areas, but we're going to use it in hard to reach places where trucks and our traditional ways have trouble getting there. So out of all of the regulatory things that have been discussed here, what would you say is the biggest stumbling block for companies like that to, to do what they want to do in the hard to reach locations? I can, I mean, I can, Take a stab at it if you want. So uh, you asked for kind of a time frame, 
I'll give you my best guess and I'll call it three and a half years, real years, not drone years, <laughs> um, before we start to see widespread delivery. Uh, now, of course, that's going to kind of go in phases. I mean, you're not going to see drones peppering the sky in that time frame. But uh, you know, Google is already doing that right now. Amazon is doing that. The technology is there. Um, there are test programs, one going on at, uh, down at Virginia Tech right now um, with one of those companies. Um, there are some, some things that need to be addressed first. Uh, a couple of technological issues. One is sense and avoid. Uh, I think we need to move a little bit further with that. We have to address some airspace challenges. And NASA has a huge project called uh, UTM. Um, they have a conference coming up soon. They've, they've really been digging into this issue to create a, um, an area of airspace where there's a high degree of certainty of that there will be no other aircraft, basically, uh, in creating separation and segregation in the airspace. But eventually, uh, technology will allow us for full integration where there is, you know, you mentioned GPS and so forth. Uh, that technology exists right now. We have uh, miniaturized uh, ADS-B transponders and so forth, but then you get into bandwidth issues and some other things like that. I don't think we're far off. I think it's just, I think we see the path. It's just a matter of getting there. Um, and I, so that's why I just, I don't think it will be too much longer before we start to see that. Uh, we may encounter some privacy issues and, you know, how does the public feel about this? You know, are we ready yet? Uh, to you know, kind of live in a world where, where drones are you know, scurrying about in the skies. I'm not sure, but I think technologically and from a regulatory policy, my guess is three to four years. One more, let's go down in front right here. Gentleman in the jacket, if we could. Uh, thank you, Nick Farmer. Can you speak specifically to the distinction between unmanned aircraft systems that are remotely operated by humans and air, uh, unmanned aircraft systems that are autonomous of humans, that is software driven. Do the regulatory issues cover both classes? Are the safety issues more or less significant one or the other? Same thing with privacy. Terrific question. I uh, so the, what, the way the, I sort of explain autonomy is that it's not a binary, it's a gradient, okay? All or most mainstream consumer drones that I, I could say all that you can buy today have some degree of automated features. They'll hover on their own. It's not like a helicopter where you need to be pulling three different levers at once, otherwise the whole thing stalls. It has some degree of intelligence in it, right? If there's a strong wind gust, it's not going to necessarily flip over. It has an autopilot system. It has a fly-by-wire system. It, it has units that, that uh, determine its position and, and its inertia in, in order to keep itself stable, right? So that's on one end of the sort of more or automation side of the scale, and we already see that all the time. It's very common. Going through to the more sort of autonomous side of the scale, that's when you tell a drone, hey, um, go to this facility, pick up this iPad case from the, the Amazon you know, distribution center and deliver it to this address. Don't crash into anything. And that raises a few questions. Uh, in terms of how the FAA deals with autonomy currently, they're not against you using an autonomous system, but you have to maintain, as I said, a direct visual line of sight with the drone at all times. And you have to be able to maintain a way of 
uh, intervening with it. You have to maintain control over it. Um, you have to have what they call a pilot in control, right? Um, so the, as things stand currently, uh, yes, there's some level of automation. The autonomy is very possible. I mean, you can already send a drone on a, a series of waypoints and say, land here, you know, come back up to this altitude, go there, go there, go there, come back. Um, the FAA is not going to look kindly upon it unless you have control over it at all times. And really, when I mentioned earlier that the, the industry, one of the main things that they're pushing for is beyond visual line of sight drone operations, it's because the autonomy element is sort of ready to go. Now, whether it's actually going to be fully safe in the eyes of the FAA, that's another question. Amazon will tell you, we can make it safe, hand on heart, we promise. The FAA, they do safety. Safety is their business. And so they're going to have a, a, a set of standards that is going to be very, very rigorous. Not to say Amazon standards <coughs> aren't going to be rigorous, but they have their unique and at times culturally informed, so, shall we say, sense of, of what counts as safe operation in the national airspace. And to them, you have to be able to see another aircraft that is potentially on a collision course with you and avoid it. A person needs to be able to do that. You cannot give that job to a machine, right? Amazon says, why not? That's how the conversation is sort of proceeding at the moment. And that's the, 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 the dialogue that does need to be resolved for that to happen. And unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time here together. Um, the uh, lunch program will begin uh, upstairs in the George Yeager Conference Center on the second floor. So if you just proceed out to the Spiral staircase, make your way up. You'll also find the restrooms up there. Let's give it up for our panel. Thank you very much.